Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. So welcome back to Memphis Metropolis, everyone. I'm the host, Emily Trenum, and today we're going to be talking about um, an innovative local eviction prevention program, an eviction settlement program, I should say. Is that that's what it's called, right? Eviction settlement program. Okay. My guest, my guests today are Webb Brewer and Constance Brown. They are working with Neighborhood Preservation, Inc., which is the local organization that's coordinating this work. Um, So we're going to be talking to them. And then after the break, I'm going to be talking to Charlie Santo, who's one of our regular contributors. We'll also be talking about eviction as well as some other subjects. So probably as many of our listeners know, one of the many impacts of COVID on our community has been loss of jobs which has left people less likely to be able to pay their rent. And there has been a federal moratorium on evictions. It's expiring at the end of the month, I believe. But those rent bills aren't going away. They're continuing to add up. And this program is is unusual um, in its approach to helping people avoid eviction. So, Webb, why don't we start with you and just Give us the overview of what the eviction settlement program is. Well, um, thanks, Emily. It's a a program that uh, the genesis of it was the CARES Act, which was passed in March of this year uh, to help people in numerous ways that are uh, struggling with the COVID pandemic. Um, And the, um, the CARES Act, uh, appropriated money to local governments to assist people in those communities in various ways, rent uh, being one of them, uh, and other you know financial burdens that are created by loss of job or illness and things of that sort. So, uh, in talking to uh, Paul Young uh, of the city and. Uh, Housing and Community Development, and Dorcas Young of the county, uh, we uh, came to this uh, idea of having what we thought was an innovative program and different than any that we had seen in other communities, which uh, involved using a large number of volunteer lawyers to negotiate with landlords uh, and their lawyers in trying to work out settlements that would allow people to uh, stay, you know, in their homes for discounted uh, amounts. Uh, We also, in in the course of negotiating these settlements, try to uh, incorporate some other things into those agreements that, you know, for example, the, the landlord will maintain the premises and uh, up to code standards uh, and or habitability standards, 
that they will allow the person to stay on if they're able to, you know, with the assistance of this program, if they're able to get new employment or whatever and uh, pay their rent to get a fresh start and be able to continue to live there for as long as they're able to continue to pay. Um, so uh, we, we think that this, you know, is a lot of, a lot of cities and, and counties uh, just began programs. They advertised that we've got, you know, large n- amount of money to help people pay their rent and people made applications and, uh, you know, they almost invariably, they ran through those funds just in a matter of uh, two or three days and didn't get, I don't think, necessarily the other protections that we're trying to get for people. So that's that's what we're doing here in Memphis. That sounds great. So, Constance, who qualifies for this for this program How and what kind of people can apply? So we basically look at three main priority areas. The first priority area is a loss of income due to the pandemic, um, any related business closures, job loss, or lack of childcare. We also look at priority area number two, which is lost income due to illness from COVID-19 or death or illness of a close family member with COVID-19. The third priority area we look to is, is that the Applicant has no viable alternative housing if they are evicted. The applicant must be willing to engage with the volunteer attorney to negotiate a settlement with their landlord and to provide all the necessary documents that we need to negotiate, um, which is typically a lease. We need a ledger. We need a W-9. But we request the ledger and a W-9 from the actual landlord if they agree to enter into negotiations with us. And as Webb was saying, the landlord also has to be willing to agree to a property inspection if that's deemed necessary as well. Um, and just to plug this in, the website for applicants to navigate to would be home, H-O-M-E, 901.org slash COVID-resources. It's a completely online application. It's fairly short. Um, and so, and they typically hear back within seven to 14 days from the intake personnel. And we'll post that in the show notes so people know how they can apply. So can landlords apply for this or do, would landlords refer their tenants? Is that how it would work? So landlords don't apply to the program, only the tenants apply. Um, But during some of my negotiations with landlords, um, once we have settled a case, they will actually refer some of their tenants to apply to our program. And I've actually um, settled maybe two or three bulk settlements up to this point with landlords that I've already had an ongoing working relationship with from prior settlements. And Webb, how many attorneys are involved in this in helping um, helping the tenants negotiate with the landlords? Well, um, we have approximately fifty lawyers who are um, volunteer lawyers uh, and part of the uh, Memphis Area Legal Services uh, Private Attorney Involvement Panel. We have a number of uh, law graduates and law students uh, that are still affiliated with the University of Memphis 
uh, law school and uh, several others that we are uh, using. I don't know. It's well in excess of 50 lawyers. I don't know an exact number at this point, but um, that's been a very um, uh, encouraging thing, too, that the local bar has uh, embraced this, this effort to the extent that it has. And so many have been willing to volunteer uh, their time. And, and some are handling many cases, you know. Um, so um, it, it's, that's been gratifying. That's wonderful. So is there, uh, is, does Neighborhood Preservation Inc. serve as sort of the, a triage point where, the, where the, the applications come in and then they screen them and then, um, you know, assign them out to volunteer attorneys? Yeah, that's uh, that's basically the way that it works. And of course, we've had such a number of um, applications made that that's been a real uh, challenge to be able to, you know, field that many applications. So there are people that are, are, are working uh, full days and weeks, you know, just trying to get those through the pipeline and out to, uh, to screen them uh, to the extent that we do and get them out to uh, attorneys, you know, to start the negotiation process. One other thing to um, uh, think about is that eviction cases get set so quickly normally in the general sessions court that, you know, there's not a lot of time sometimes between the time that a person uh, is served with process and then at least they have their first court setting. Now, there have been a moratorium and then um, limitations put by the Tennessee Supreme Court on the numbers of evictions that can be heard in particular dockets, and that's to try to uh, minimize the danger of, of too many people in the courtroom. So that's helped a little bit with that. But it has been really a challenge to, um, you know, try to get those out and into attorneys' hands uh, in time to try to contact opposing attorneys and begin the process before, you know, that first court setting. That's a big challenge. Well, are, um, are landlords continuing to try to evict people even though there's a moratorium? Yeah, I'll... Um, start with that and i know constance has a lot of experience directly with that yes they, they have been and in fact uh unfortunately we've seen a number of instances where um landlords were able to get their cases set and took judgments and even have evicted people uh in violation of the cares act which you know was in effect uh and and now more recently there's the uh, CDC moratorium that applies to most evictions. But yes, there have been a, uh, some really aggressive landlords that have tried to push judgments through, even when people have filed these declarations saying that uh, they're not able to pay the rent and uh, have made their best efforts and so forth. Uh, and under, the, under that halt order, uh, that was uh, issued by the CDC, landlords are not supposed to evict people. 
that are in that position. So one of the things the program does is counsel people on the very first contact to fill out the declaration and submit it to their landlord. Uh, because so many people were acting anyway, we've begun trying to file them, you know, in the court, actually, in the docket number uh, to minimize this, this instance that we've seen of people uh, being evicted in spite of the protections, uh, the legal protections that are in place. Constance, did you want to jump in here? Yes, um, I do actually have a story that is directly related to the CDC declaration. Um, before I go into the story, I just wanted to plug in the website where applicants can also navigate to to actually generate the declaration that Webb was just referring to. So the website is www.covid19evictionforms.com. This, this website will allow the applicant to generate the document that's needed. They can email it, text it, or mail it to their landlord, but it must be delivered for the protection to activate. Um, so the particular story, actually, there was a tenant. Um, she filed her declaration because, as Webb said at the beginning, we have the applicants to go ahead and generate it and deliver it. Um, she filed a declaration, delivered it to her landlord. Um, the landlord refused to to speak with any of the attorneys, and so did his counsel initially. So then the case was transferred to myself and my mentor, David Cook, and we were able to go to court and speak with the landlord's attorney at court before the actual hearing proceeded. And uh, we were explaining to him the the stipulations of the CDC declaration that she was in fact protected from eviction until after December 31st of 2020, and that if his client, who was the landlord, evicted her in violation of that declaration, he would face the penalties that are outlined in the declaration. Um, so he stepped to the side, he conferred with his client. His client um, basically was telling us that he did not want to receive any settlement funds from us. He just wanted her off of the property. And that he at first he was making the claim that she was perjuring herself when she signed a declaration as if the the stipulations within it that she attested to were not true. And so he agreed to drop the perjury argument, but he did want a judgment for possession of the property. Well, we did not go against the judgment because we knew that she was protected from eviction until after December 31st, 2020. So. A week or so following this particular hearing, the tenant called me and then I called David because she called me upset and she called me crying because there was a private server on the property that was trying to evict her and her family, her children and her partner from their home. This is despite the fact that we had already explained what would happen if he did this. Um, so I asked to speak with the server. I spoke with him and I said, sir, please, I can email you a copy of her declaration. She has filed it. You can read it for yourself. You can see that she's protected. Um, you, you can't do this. Legally, you cannot evict her. And so after about, I would say 15, 20 minutes of back and forth, because the landlord was not there. If he was, he, he didn't hop on the phone with us. Um, he finally told the tenant that because he was receiving conflicted information from us and from the landlord. He could not in good conscience evict her that day, but that he would return. He didn't tell her when he would return. 
she had nowhere to go. She had no money at the time to even get a U-Haul to find somewhere else to, to move her family. So myself, David Webb, Katie Ramsey, and da I think Daniel Shavson also, we, we and, and Steve Barlow, we conferred with one another. We decided to draft a writ of certiorari. And with this writ, it's generally used when there is a danger of an execution of a judgment that has been rendered against someone. Well, in this particular case, we were going to use it in lieu of an appeal to in basically enjoin, which is stop, stop the, um, the landlord from evicting the family from the home. So we entered, we, we were about to enter the real, we, we, of course, we follow, followed all of the strategic um, steps to doing so, notifying opposing counsel, et cetera. He eventually agreed to drop the entire matter. So this was a long story to say, thankfully, she was not evicted from her home. Her family was not evicted from her home, but we did have to follow a lot of steps, different steps. There were a lot of moving parts to prevent that from happening. And I believe that this particular story is just a testament to how there are some landlords who refuse to even accept money from us. So um, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I don't know if you, either of you have listened to the show before, but I've got a jargon bell which I ring when something needs to be explained. Um, and so the writ. So uh, explain what that, one of you explain what that is in uh, non-attorney's language and how that was important in um, forestalling the eviction, if you could. Well, the writ of certiorari is a uh, common law uh, writ, and it's, it's actually in the Constitution of the of the. Uh, state of Tennessee, uh, and, and what it does is remove a case from a lower court to a higher court. There's also a statutory uh, writ of certiorari. It gets a little complicated, but where um, there's a very short appeal time uh, from the General Sessions Court to uh, the Circuit Court, and there's a big bond requirement that goes with it. So in this instance, um, because, uh, you know, a judgment had been taken uh, and uh, 10 days had passed, which is the appeal time, and we were trying to avoid paying that big bond, um, we used the writ of certiorari. And what goes with that is a supersedious bond. And, and through that process, you can... Uh, get the case to a higher court. It's kind of a different sort of appeal and get uh, a supersedious issued, which prevents the opposing party from, you know, executing a writ or doing something until the, the circuit court can hear the case. So we've used that procedure several times because things are moving so fast in this program and several times, you know, someone has already had a judgment taken against them before we were, you know, involved. And so we've had to uh, rush around and try to do what we could to keep them in their, in their home. Well, thanks for explaining that. So Webb, tell us about a person you helped, because I feel like, um, 
it's really the stories that help people understand the impact of the program. Yes, I um, I worked with a particular client, and uh, this was a really, really tragic story. And one of the first people that I had close contact with that had lost an immediate relative to COVID. Um, this woman <clears throat> had is a a senior. And uh, she had been a model uh, tenant uh, renting a, a home uh, for uh, several years. And her daughter got sick. Uh, she suddenly had trouble breathing and, and eventually was rushed to the hospital and died just two or three days later. Um, she had three children um, that uh, were the grandchildren of my client. And of course, they uh, had nowhere to go. So they moved in with uh, my client. So suddenly, um, you know, there were, were uh, four people living in a household that had been one. Um, and two of them had COVID themselves that, uh, you know, they had gotten from their mother. Um, and uh, the client uh, is employed um, and, and working from home during this pandemic, but uh, with hospital expense, medical bills and hospital expenses and funeral and burial expenses, she got a couple of months behind on her rent and then was served with an eviction warrant and was actually facing being evicted, she and her three grandchildren, one of whom is still in high school and, um, you know, is having to do uh, remote learning. Uh, so had they been evicted, not only would they not have had anywhere to go, but he wouldn't have been able to continue his education and things of that sort. So, you know, this was a really, really uh, tragic uh, situation, but we have been able to uh, reach an agreement and we're finalizing the paperwork on it now where the landlord is accepting about 75% of the amount owed uh, in rent uh, that this person missed. Um, and she was trying so hard to keep her head above water and pay the rent that she went and before she got uh, to our program, she went out and took out an auto uh, title pawn loan, which of course is a, is a disastrous way to get yourself deeper into trouble. Oh no! With those high interest rates. So um, one sidelight to that is that yesterday's uh, Daily Memphian, Tom Bailey had written an article about this particular person. And that has spawned, I've gotten two or three uh, contacts from people wanting to give her further help. So uh, it's another example of, of people kind of pulling together and, and trying to lift each other up during this, uh, this crisis. So I guess last question, you know, for both of you, um, you know, we're near the end of the year. Um, the CDC moratorium, I guess, is going to expire unless it's extended. Um, I know in a lot of cases, CARES Act dollars have to be spent by the end of the year. I don't know if that's the case here. But um, 
but people are going to continue to be evicted or threatened with eviction. Um, this ripple effect isn't going away anytime soon. So what's the future look like? Are you worried? And are there plans to try to address those issues um, after the first of the year? Well, as you stated, you know, eviction, the ripple effect of evictions doesn't seem like it's going to go away anytime soon. Um, in my opinion, evictions are a community issue. And because we all know when people are evicted, there's damage to that person's credit, their their ability to find a new home, their quality of rental properties and availabilities, it decreases as well. Um, evictions can disrupt their work, their transportation, schools, social fabric, everything. So I do believe that as long, as long as the program is running, despite the CDC declaration still being intact or extended um, or not, as long as the program is running, I do believe that volunteer attorneys, the ones we already have and ones that may be interested in what we are doing, will be interested in continuing this work and helping us to assist those who are facing eviction. Um, there is a way that we could use our, our legal skills to continue to assist these individuals. Unfortunately, since the pandemic hasn't gone anywhere, I do doubt that evictions will go anywhere anytime soon that are a result of the pandemic. But I do believe that if we work together as we are now, and that we continue to expand our efforts, that we can't at least make a dent in the in the tragedy that has befallen those who are facing eviction for this reason. Well, I'm sure we're going to be revisiting this issue. Um, it's going to be you know a serious one going forward. So I'm going to post, as I said earlier, I'm going to post the application in the show notes for people who didn't hear that website address and want to want to apply or have or know someone that would be eligible. So I've been talking to Webb Brewer and Constance Brown, who are working with Neighborhood Preservation Inc. on a local eviction settlement program that's been very successful. So thank you, Webb. Thank you, Constance. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis, everybody. Um, pleased to welcome Charlie Santo from University of Memphis City and Regional Planning. He's one of our regular commentators. So welcome back, Charlie. Hey, Emily. Good to be here. So, Charlie, earlier in the program, I had Webb Brewer and Constance Brown. They're working with Neighborhood Preservation, Inc. on a, um, a really innovative uh, eviction prevention program that is, instead of just giving uh, funding to uh, people that are being threatened with eviction to help them get caught up actually negotiates um, between tenants and landlords for lower rent. And there's a couple, I mean, there's, there's a lot to like about the program. It's, it's different than what's being done in other communities. Making, I think the money is, um, I think it's more efficient. So I think the money is spreading further and helping more people, which is always great. But a couple of other things really impressed me about it. First of all, 
the they have like 50 volunteer attorneys working on this from the law school, from necessary legal services, I think from some pro bono, from some uh, some law firms. And of course, the city and county are partners in terms of preventing uh, pr- providing some CARES Act funding. And I was just really impressed with the number of people that were involved in entities, just kind of a, you know, when there's a community problem, you just love to see all hands on deck. And that, that was like, so just really impressed me by the number of people that were involved in the number of people they're able to help. Yeah, I think that's really true. It's really important. Um, with a problem as big as as this kind of problem, you know, to have leadership at HCD and Paul Young that is able to make these connections, um, it helps that his sisters, uh, you know, in the other agency with the county that's involved with this. Uh, so having that combination is is pretty nice. They're really they're they're a um, they're a f- sort of a familial power couple in a way. Um, working, be able to work together on a number of different, um, and have both been really amazing leaders for those two, for Shelby County, and then for HCD, as you said. Yeah, yeah, power, power a couple in a, in a good way. <laughs> right. Um, the, another thing about it was that I like the idea of helping landlords. I, th- I do think that that you know, landlords have been made out to be the bad guys um, in a lot of these situations. And of course, there's the world in our community is rife with, you know, bad actors in that space. But um, but most people aren't bad actors. And there's a lot of small landlords who have got to pay their own mortgages and and they need relief as well. It's not as, as as dire as someone, an individual losing their home, but they're still part of the equation. And that's one thing I like about this is that it gives them some relief as well as assistance to the family. Yeah, I think that's that's something that's really impressive about this. And you know, if you think about it, it's kind of a, a bundle of problems. The eviction crisis is is really like two crises in one, right? This, the scarier one is for the renters who are facing eviction. But there is that second impact on landlords, or at least some landlords, which if you don't mitigate that, that could then trigger a foreclosure crisis. Uh, And in reality, the last foreclosure crisis, 2008, um, that has made our current eviction crisis worse because it deteriorated home ownership in Memphis to the point that we now have more renters and homeowners. And we can talk more about that in a minute. But, But yeah, I think... You know, we need more than a moratorium on evictions, and that's kind of what the the federal standard is right now, which ends at the end of this month. Um, that and that's nice. You know, you can't you can't evict people during this pandemic, uh, but leaving it just a moratorium is really just kicking the can down the road because that rent is still accruing, right? And it still needs to be paid at some point. Um, so if the moratorium ends at the end of December, and now you've got six months of or four months or three months or whatever of rent that's due. Um, that's a problem, uh, for the renter and for the landlord. Um, you know, then the the landlord is in a lot of cases using that rent to pay the mortgage on that property. Uh, and so then, you know, the property goes from being rented to being vacant and foreclosed on. Well, but potentially blighted. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like you said, with a lot of times the landlord, um, you know, gets the bad reputation here. 
uh, as lawyers do, and lawyers are sort of the good guy <laughs> in this scenario. Uh, but if you look at the the figures, um, I was looking at something that the Brookings Institution did about about this issue, uh, and their data says that forty percent of residential property units are owned by inv- individual investor landlords. So they're kind of small mom and pop landlords. Uh, And it's those people that are going to be hitting that second wave uh, of this crisis if there isn't any way to to pay those rents and help them pay their mortgages. Well, at the end of the my my talk with Webb and Constance, I asked them both about um, if they were worried about the future. And maybe that was an obvious question, but you're right. There's um, we talk about that about how the CDC, the the Center for Disease Control actually issued the current moratorium that is set to expire at the end of December. Um, the CARES Act dollars that are helping support this this uh, eviction prevention program, I believe, have to be expended by the end of the calendar year. And as you mentioned, the the rents are accumulating. They're not being forgiven for many people. Um, and they, and the pandemic is still going on. So it seems like Memphis is uh, already a place where there's a lot of evictions. And this just seems like a perfect storm. It is. It's, um, you know, there's a need for federal policy intervention here. Uh, <laughs> and it looks like we're not going to get any kind of stimulus deal at all. Uh, by the end of the year. And if we do, it's going to be a smaller one, but hopefully there'll be, you know, if there is something, it's a stopgap between now and when something larger can get done uh, after January 20th. So do you think, is there a connection, do you think, between, um, you know, high high numbers of evictions in Memphis generally and all of our out-of-town investors Yeah, I, I do think there is. I mean, there's a, there's a, a larger context to that is, um, in part, how Memphis recovered or didn't recover from the earlier, the, the mid-2000s recession. Um, and an even bigger part of that is that Memphis has always been uh, more, more renter-heavy than most American cities, right? Home ownership in the U.S. at its peak, 2005, dropped a little bit during the recession and recovered by 2015 to about that same level, uh, 75%. Memphis at its peak was 55% home ownership. And now in the last 10 years, that's flipped. We're 55% renters now. Um, and so for, for most cities, that percentage of renters increased during the recession, but then has recovered. In Memphis, it hasn't, right? It's, it's sort of flipped. And it's so what we've seen is foreclosed homes turned into rental properties. And a lot of those foreclosed homes sold to rental investors. Um, and in, in some places where those neighborhoods where those homes have been sold to rental investors, you've actually also seen rent, rents increase, prices increase. Um, so there's rental affordability is declining in the post-recession recovery as well. And yeah, I think some, I think a lot of that does have to do with the, the out-of-town investors. Well, and I didn't get a chance to ask Webb whether or not they had negotiated any of these settlements with out-of-town investors. I, I'm guessing Probably not, but I, I need to circle back and ask him about that. So, um, so let's talk about some of the, um, you know, 
historical policy decisions that the led to current conditions. We had a um, last week. I had a program on increasing black home ownership in Memphis, and had on Amy Schaffline from United Housing, and then the executive director of NARAB, which is the African American Real Estate Trade Association. And we talked a lot about that, about federal policy that after World War II really started a pattern of discrimination in housing, especially as it relates to home ownership that continues today. So talk a little bit about that because you're even more of an expert about that than I am. Yeah, it, there's there's always been a, a, a dramatic difference in home ownership rates between white Americans and Americans of color. Um, and a lot of that was, yes, government policies explicitly ingraining racial segregation through redlining and, and racial steering and and explicitly limiting access to home ownership for minorities, you know, limiting access to, to loan products. Um, you know, if you want to read a whole book about this, and you may have talked about this on, on that program, uh, but The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein uh, is really eye-opening uh, to a lot of people. And, you know, he participated in the, the Memphis State of Housing Summit um, a few weeks ago, and his conversation with Terry Freeman from the Civil Rights Museum uh, is actually available. It was recorded. So if you Google uh, State of Memphis Housing Summit, you can find that conversation. You know, it's an hour and a half. Uh, of really interesting stories. I can link to it in the show notes if people missed it. Yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that the, the federal government created this Federal Housing Administration uh, in the 30s to help middle-class uh, Americans become homeowners and to, to stimulate the construction industry, which was, you know, really devastated by the Depression. And this was an entity that, that backed, um, government-backed mortgage insurance programs that made banks less reluctant to, to lend money. So it really stoked home ownership. Um, but it really only benefited white homeowners who were buying new homes in the suburbs. Um, it, it favored suburbanization and explicitly ingrained the segregation. There was an underwriting manual that told banks who they could and couldn't loan to, and it discouraged loans to, and this is a quote uh, from the underwriting manual, discouraged loans that would lead to an infiltration of inharmonious racial, racial or nationality groups. Uh, and it, it warned that if a neighborhood was to retain its stability, it's necessary that property shall continue to be occupied by the same social and racial classes. Uh, so because of those rules, the vast majority of those FHA loans and VA loans went to white middle-class families in the suburbs. Uh, and then on top of that, you had these deed restrictions that restricted the, the sale of new construction homes uh, prohibited sale of those homes to African-Americans and even the future resale of those homes to African-Americans. So large swaths of American families were blocked from this wealth creation mechanism. I mean, these homes for these white families that were able to buy them post-World War II accrued, appreciated in value over time, and that creates equity. Um, and you know, most families, the bulk of their, their wealth that they have comes from their home. Um, and so that creates opportunities to, to pay for college, uh, to retire, to pass money down to, to, to future generations. And that was blocked for, for African-American families, minority families. So connect that, uh, help me connect the dots from that 
to, you know, disparity in evictions, um, you know, there's been a disparate impact, obviously, um, on African Americans uh, in in evictions generally, not just in this current crisis. But can you help connect those dots? Well, I mean, it's if you think about this the this current crisis being particularly troublesome for Memphis uh, because of how Memphis compares to to the U.S. overall, because we have a large African American population, and because of those historical, you know rules and regulations that limited opportunities for, for African-American families, those families tend to be, tend, tend to be renters. And um, so therefore they're, you know, they're the ones that are likely to be evicted. Um, so Memphis has never had the overall number of homeowners, the home ownership rate that mirrors the national figures because we have a larger African-American, partly because we have a larger African-American population. So that that peak of seventy five percent home ownership at the U.S. Memphis at its peak was was fifty five percent, and now we're forty five percent homeowners. Uh, so we just have we just have more people uh, renting. And within the home ownership ranks, I mean the the there's a, a big gap between African American home ownership and white home ownership. Yeah, that's right. It's I think it's the African American home ownership in Memphis is some less than forty percent. And the, so the, the other the problem there to go back to your question about how does that lead to evictions? Um, the majority of those renters in, in Memphis were already cost burdened before the pandemic. So cost burden is a before you ring the jargon bell. It's a <laughs> it's a term that it's the <laughs> term for a household that pays more than thirty percent of their income towards rent. Right. So you got your income thirty uh, percent of it or more going to rent. That's cost burden. Um, over 50% of Memphis renters are in that category. And in fact, there are 28% of Memphis renters pay more than half of their income in rent. So already a precarious position before the pandemic. And then you start to factor in people losing jobs. Um, you know, we were at Memphis was facing 30,000 evictions a, a year before the pandemic. Yeah, the, the housing cost burden is... Um... I may be really in the weeds, but that would be an interesting subject to explore at some point on Memphis Metropolis. So if you're just joining us, uh, you are listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM here in Memphis. And I'm talking to Charlie Santo, who's with University of Memphis Division of City and Regional Planning. So, so we talked about past policy um, and how it contributed to a lot of conditions, including uh, evictions. So what would what what do you think is needed policy wise? I mean, a couple of things. First of all, after December 31st, um, and I realize you're not necessarily, you know, a national housing policy expert, but any ideas of what you would like to see in the short term? And then longer term, what kind of policy changes could help bring down this eviction rate yeah. over, over time here in Memphis? I mean, I think this is an opportunity to respond to what has really been an affordable housing crisis even before the pandemic, right? Now it's sort of laid bare. Um, and no, I'm not an expert, but I can point you to people who are. And so I would say for people who are interested, the National Low-Income Housing Coalition 
has put together a, a set of policy priorities for responding to this crisis. And we can link that in the, in the show notes as well. There's short-term responses. And, you know, I think in, in short term, it's the, it's the, the relief funding, right? It's got to, we, we need to increase that relief funding. It's got to be billions, hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, and then we can, we need to go back to funding public housing, uh, whether that's through choice vouchers or, you know, traditional public housing, um, those those programs have been woefully underfunded for years, um, and they're programs that have provided housing people provided housing for people for a long time. Um, so, returning that funding to those programs, I think, is something that is becoming more evident that we need to do. Well, most people have no idea how few people who who are eligible for public housing are able to get it. Right. And I think that's a cause of so many people living in substandard housing here in Memphis is that there's just not enough vouchers or units to even scratch the service for people who need it. Yep. That's exactly right. Anything else policy-wise? Um I don't know. I mean, it, well, first of all, things like a higher minimum wage. <laughs> yeah, some of the systemic issues that contribute to. I mean, I guess the income levers and, um, you know, better jobs and transportation to the jobs. Well, all yeah. of those things we talk about. Yeah, that's true. That connection in Memphis between transportation access and, and poverty is is a real factor that needs to be addressed. So, Charlie, I want, before we ring off, I want to talk about, um, you know, a, a big loss in our community recently, which was the death of Tommy Pacello, who was um, left an enormous gap in certainly the community development world and the whole city. Tommy was head of the, the founder and president of the Memphis Medical District partnership collaborative. And before that, he was with the mayor's innovation delivery team. Interestingly, I just had Abby Miller from that group on a couple weeks ago. We talked about some of the ways that um, that group really helped ignite a lot of positive changes at the neighborhood level through things like creative place making work in the transit arena and so the loss of Tommy is just um, was devastating in a lot of ways. So, what what are your what are your thought, what are your reflections about Tommy and his legacy? Yeah, it was really really devastating uh, news. Yeah, I, I met Tommy ten years ago when he was a, a student in our grad program in city planning. Um, you know, everyone who's anybody comes through that program i just want to say that's true just, just saying <laughs> but yeah tommy he was a brilliant student uh not just really smart but had this transformative personality uh, he's the kind of student that would make the entire group of students around him better and really made our program better uh, when he when he came in he had already had a law degree so he had some experience and some some worldliness already but he would ask questions and, and pitch ideas that made us professors work um, 
and so I, you know, really some of the work that I've done that I'm most proud of, I can credit to Tommy's thoughtfulness and his inquisitiveness. Um, when what he was, some, what are some examples of that? Well, when he was in our program, we were, t- it was a lot of conversation at the time about Richard Florida's creative class concept. And, uh, we would talk about that in class and, you know, he would ask questions about, well, what does that mean for planners? How do we operationalize that? What, what policy can we implement to attract creative people? And more importantly, how does that actually benefit neighborhoods, people that are already living here? And so that that led me to create a, a series of special topics classes specifically to, to ponder that. Uh, and those conversations, those classes ultimately led to this community university partnership focused on music and arts-based revitalization in Soulsville. You know, so we worked with Community Lift and the Soulsville Foundation, the Memphis Music Foundation, the Symphony Orchestra. We did some amazing things, uh, one of which was the development of the, the Memphis Slim Collaboratory. Um, so just that kind of a person that would make you think and want to work hard. Um, and I've had students that have come to Memphis from other cities that knew about the work that Tommy was doing in the medical district before they got here and they, they sought him out for men- men- mentorship. Um, when we had folks come in and visit from other places, like a couple of years ago, we had a, a group of planning students from Iowa State uh, come in and we wanted to give them a tour of some interesting planning things in Memphis. So we, we brought them down to the medical district and let him, you know, let him talk to Tommy. Um, just, just an inspirational person. I agree. I was telling somebody, I mean, aside from his professional accomplishments and his leadership, that was, he was such a leader and an innovator in our world and um, but but I was telling someone else he was just you couldn't ask for you know a nicer, more generous person. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, always willing to to give up his time and meet with students and you know meet with guests. And always had a smile on his face. Yeah, <laughs> that's something that I personally put a premium on. I agree. Yes. So well, he's going to be missed. Well, Charlie, thanks for joining me today. Um, You're listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR FM, and I've been talking to Charlie Santo, one of our regular commentators. And Charlie, I look forward to uh, a, a discussion, another discussion very soon. All right. Thanks, Emily. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.